How do we balance self-care and self-sacrifice? How much independence should we give our kids? Are reward systems effective? Today, we'll address these questions and learn great tips and strategies for parenting with internationally acclaimed author, practicing psychotherapist, and lecturer, Sarah Hannah Radcliffe. Mrs. Radcliffe writes and lectures on subjects relating to parenting, relationships, anxiety, stress, and anger management. In addition to her weekly column in the Mishpacha magazine, she has written many highly acclaimed books. Among them are Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice and The Fear Fix. Her most recent publication is Better Behavior Now. Hey, I'm Rivka. I'm a health coach and your guide to a more balanced, healthy lifestyle. And I'm Ida, mental health awareness advocate and ADD coach. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're mumtrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both inspired by how much we learned from each other's life experiences. We decided then and there to create this platform to invite you to join in our conversation and discover the joy of growth and personal transformation. We'll share the practical and valuable tools, tips, and shortcuts that may have taken us a little longer to learn. Yes, by combining our shared knowledge and expertise and the things that we do to bring more clarity and focus into our lives in mind, body, and soul. Join us in building a strong and supportive network of women who ignite positive change from the inside out. Hey, Sarah Hanna. Hello. It's such an honor. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for taking the time to join us on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah, you guys have a great podcast. It, it looks like it has a lot of promise. Yeah, like it's new, right? It's, you just started. Yeah, the yes. The few sessions that I saw are what's there, right? Like a, yeah. Yes, exactly. We yeah. just started. Very good. Yeah, during, co- during COVID-19, actually. Well, we're really excited to invite you and our listeners into this conversation to hear what you have to share. Your work is applicable to so many people um, on a large scale. And that's yeah. why books on parenting can become bestsellers because we can all find ourselves in those books. Yeah. I actually discovered your work when I was talking to a new client and telling her about my balanced approach to healthy living. And she told me, hey, this approach reminds me so much of Sarah Hannah Radcliffe's of yours. And she yes. highly recommended <laughs> your book, which I bought, read, and totally loved. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad. It was the 80-20 rule, right? That you that you yep. that you use and that I use yes. in a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. So can you define what balance means to you and your approach to parenting? Um, if we think of the word, yeah, balance, it's almost like a rebalance of our natural tendencies of what we want to do in parenting. Because when we're with children who are beyond the absolutely adorable, you know, can't help, you know, <laughs> laughing and smiling at them all day, whatever age which is like maybe the toddlerhood once again and some kids pass that age even in the first year of life but when a child moves from constantly cute to in trouble okay um, because the child is exploring the environment and now encountering something that might be dangerous or inappropriate or destructive or whatever it is parents step into the guidance mode once we enter that guidance mode we get unbalanced in the sense that we we tend to stay there um, and if you look at how parents are interacting with children when they're just completely natural about it, or, or maybe maybe that's natural in previous generations, maybe the next generation's natural will be will look a lot better actually. But anyways, earlier parents um, would follow kids around doing two types of um, unpleasant 
interactions primarily throughout the day. One is giving instructions and the other is giving corrections. Those two things in some form. So instructions are, okay, it's time to get dressed, it's time to eat, it's time to get ready for school, even online school, whatever it is. Uh, it's time to put away the toys, it's time, please stop fighting with your brother, and so on and so forth. That kind of conversation I put in the in a category called not good feeling. <laughs> it doesn't, people, people don't like to be told what to do. So when you're told what to do all day long, it feels aversive and it's not relationship building. It's not bonding. It's not warm. It's not fun. But we parents do that constantly. And then if we don't get compliance, then we start with the threats and the negative consequences and who knows what. So those, that's really unbalanced parenting. Because what, you know what the child needs to have is huge doses of positive attention and love and warmth at the ages in which they're no longer constantly adorable okay so like um you know let's say three years to 20 years old whatever it is when they're into these things they still need a tremendous amount of positive attention so when we balance it properly the correct balance is 80 20 and the reason for that it's not 50 50 the reason for that is because one negative far outweighs a positive so one right um yeah one critical remark can hurt you all day long, whereas a million little compliments and jokes or whatever, they're good, but they, they don't um, stay in your system as strongly. So that the balance is what I call the 80-20 rule, 80% good feeling interactions to 20% educational but not so good feeling. So I mean, long answer for a short question. I'm sorry. Right, right. <laughs> no, I can't, can't help myself. <laughs> okay. No, I love that I answer. Wonder, yeah, and I love the the whole, the idea of a balanced approach and keeping the positive greater than the negative. I just wonder during these times, you know, with the the quarantine and being at home, do you feel like the rules um, can change <laughs> or or like how do we navigate that? Does that rule still apply now? Yes, because human beings don't change <laughs> the, the situation around us might change but we we're not suddenly going to start thriving with negative attention <laughs> it's not going to work for us no i thought maybe we have to do 90 10 <laughs> actually is the ratio for teenagers actually no joking aside i say it's 80 20 for kids under 12 90 10 for teenagers because teenagers have less tolerance for being directed and then 95 5 for marriage because adults have even less tolerance for being told what to do and oh 105 minus 5 for your in-law children. So if you have to be living with any in-law children right now, it's 105 minus 5. Wow. <laughs> they have even less tolerance for listening <laughs> to you. So, um, but anyways, the good news is that we can do all of our discipline. Like I would say 95% of our discipline, the educational and guiding strategies can be uh, coming from your 80% when you know how, which is what the subject of my little new book, um, Better Behavior Now, is all about how to use discipline from the 80%. Discipline means teaching. So how to get the child to eat with his knife and fork instead of his hands, or how to get him to respond appropriately when you say the answer no instead of having a meltdown, or how to get the toy he wants from his sibling with the device you know, that he's, it's his turn on without punching them out. Like how to, how to change the behavior to more socially appropriate and healthy behaviors. All of this can be done through using the positive techniques when you know how, so there's no problem, <laughs> okay? Right, nice. When we are not in the best place, like how can we remain consistent with this approach and with our kids when sometimes our moods are inconsistent? Can you make any suggestions for remaining calm during chaos? A few, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, first of all, one thing we have to 
be aware of is that our mood is affected by our behavior. When we smile, our lips go up. Our brain believes us to be in a good state of mind and sends us happy chemistry. So even if we were in a horrible mood and we just stuck a pencil in our mouth causing our lips to turn up, okay, uh, our brain would be fooled into sending us some happy chemistry and we start to feel better. When we use a soft voice and talk in a slow way to the children, even let's say they're punching each other out and they're screaming and they're yelling and they're, they're wreaking havoc, they're making chaos. Um, the natural thing is that we catch that fire, but we don't have to go the natural route. What we can do is let them catch our fire, so to speak. Let, them, let energy flows between people. Let them catch our energy. So if they're screaming and we start talking really slowly and really quietly, our brain believes that we're not in danger. When we start raising our voice and talking really fast and telling them, you've got to stop this because I can't take this. I'm going to crack up in here. You have to go to your room, whatever. We talk like that. We actually alarm our own brain and it sends us stress chemistry. And of course, we'll be shaking after that and we'll be, we'll be in a state of um, discomfort, anxiety, stress, and overwhelm that we led the way to okay, ourselves. There's very few parenting emergencies and the noise that kids are making is not the same as them standing in traffic. So we don't need to act as if it's that kind of emergency. No matter what they're doing, if they're really hurting each other, okay, so we'll step in and separate them. And then we'll just say, now look, you guys have to find a better way to do this. You know, <laughs> start like, tone it down. We calm ourselves down. And we start being in a more um, balanced state inside ourselves. And the children will take their cue from us instead of us taking our cue from them. That's one technique. Um, but do you want to pause? Are there any questions on that one? Before that is great. Uh, what about not because they have led us to be in the bad mood, but we are going through something at that stage that they walk into the room. How can we... Yes. You know what I mean? It's really in our hands. How can we get, let's say, get out of our mood so that we can deal with the situation properly? I guess you're going to tell me to breathe. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you to breathe unless you have a daily practice, which I do recommend, of breathing. Um, you know, let's say five seconds, let's four seconds in, four seconds out. Let's just say that nice breath there. Very slowly in, two, three, four, out, two three, four. That is called the coherent breath. And mm -hmm. uh, you can learn a lot about that at heartmath.com, um, where the research on that is tremendous as far as, uh, I mean, there's a million different breaths, but that particular one does not relax us so much as balances us and makes us smart and able to respond in a tough situation. It's a very unique breath. And if you were doing that breath for three minutes every day, then I would tell you to breathe, okay? But if you're not doing a breath every day, three minutes, then your, your brain doesn't yet know how to use the breath to um, reestablish balance. So there's no point breathing <laughs> unless you are doing it regularly. And I highly recommend that you do it three minutes a day as you're going to bed or as you're getting up or whenever you're having your coffee break or I don't know, whenever you can, right? And then you can do it many more minutes than three if you want. But if you do it only three minutes a day, you'll be able to use it to shift your state when your kids come in your room and they need something from you when you haven't been in a good state. So that is one technique. Um, you know, if you're being bothered by thoughts, you know, like, how long is this going to be? I can't take another day of this. Um, you know, uh, we're drowning financially. It's a disaster. And you're allowing your um, attention 
to fall on negative thoughts and ideas, you will generate, of course, a tremendous amount of stress in your body because every thought we think has a chemical package associated with it. Every word we say has a chemical package associated with it. So if you were to think about flowers or something beautiful, your whole body relaxes because of the chemistry that's released into your bloodstream when you think of those beautiful things. And when you think of the disaster and, the, and how long this disaster is going to be on and how many people are going to die and whether you're going to die and all that kind of stuff, you release tremendous amounts of stress chemistry into your body. Your body you know, will suffer. Your mind will suffer. Your cognition will suffer. Your emotions will suffer. Your Everything. <laughs> and it's not good spiritually either. It's like just a mess. Now, some people think they don't have any choice of what to think about, but that's where we're wrong because your brain is your instrument. It's your tool, but you are not your brain. And you are really the one who decides on where to put your attention and your brain follows your instructions. So we could think about anything we want to be thinking about when we're, let's say, making the beds or setting the table or washing the dish or whatever it is, because our mind has plenty of space to wander. But it doesn't wander very far. It's like a lazy horse. Is that like, do I draw a picture of this for my clients where I show them there's a horse, there's two fields, okay? I, I take a picture, I draw the page down the middle and I say, here's the world. And half the world is beyond amazing and glorious and beautiful and positive. And the other half of the world is scary, disastrous, dark, you know, uh, suffering. Now, I don't believe that it's half and half, actually, but I draw this picture half and half, okay? And then I draw a little horse at the bottom of the page, and I point it towards the field, which, which is full of um, disaster and suffering. I say, that's our natural uh, kind of animal tendency that we're automatically wired with. We'll be hopping over to that field when our attention has time to wander. So if you think of that horse as your attention, and the field is full of these you know, negative thoughts and ideas, that's the grass that the horse chews on. Now, that horse is going to chew on it unless you put a rider on the horse, which is your intention. Put a rider on that horse and ride it over to the other field, the field that is full of the gratitudes and blessings and joys, and you force the horse to eat from the other field. It's your horse if you, if you put your rider on it. The thing is, even when the horse is riding to the negative field, it, wherever the horse rides, it's very, very limited. It's a fat, lazy horse in the sense that our attention hovers around two or three things all the time, like, or let's say five things. The, where our attention can go is in the universe. It's infinite. We could be thinking about how plankton under the sea are eating or where the stars are doing or how carburetors are made. Like, Our attention could be on an infinity, literally an infinity of thoughts. But no, we tend to just go back to the same ones over and over and over, the same like five or something. Now, during the coronavirus, we're really, you know, the, never mind five, we're on two. Then we're going to think about this all day long. Okay, it's very, very limited. We don't have to if it's not working for us. Okay, and unless you are one of the people who are going to solve the coronavirus by yourself, you know, I don't think you should waste your time putting your attention there. You want to get on that horse and ride it over and fill your mind with joyful things. And then because you're doing that, the grass will grow on that side, so to speak. The wires, the neural networks in your brain will wire on that positive side. That as we use this instrument, our attention, we wire our brain. So we can wire ourselves for lots of anxiety. We can become professional warriors because the more we practice it, the more wires grow, the more circuits grow. The more the horse eats that grass, the more the grass grows on that side. And literally, that's what's happening inside our brain.
If it's not working for you, grow some new circuits on the other side of the brain and you'll feel better. I mean, that's a crash course in neurology. No, I love that analogy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Love that <laughs> crash course. Thank you for the shortcut. <laughs> when you mentioned, you know, you are not your brain. I love that statement. My thoughts don't um, drop into our head from outer space, actually. They drop in from inner space. The thoughts mm -hmm. that come to us are the ones we chose before. Just like when you go to order a book on Amazon and they give you 10 suggestions. Those 10 suggestions are based on what you ordered before, what you were searching for, what you clicked on, what you liked. So right. Amazon doesn't know that you love those 10 books of their billion books, okay? And your brain follows you. What have you been clicking on recently and expanding and playing with and being busy with, okay? Oh, you like that one? I'll suggest it to you again, okay? So you can say, no, actually, I don't like that one. <laughs> it's full of poison. And, and that's the truth. We select poison thoughts all day long and then wonder why we feel stressed and tired and exhausted and burned out and awful. <laughs> we don't have to select those. You're the shopper. You know, look for something else. You have an infinite choice of what to think about. So are so, we self-sabotaging because we're just in a passive state and we don't recognize that we have that capacity to change? We don't, we're not, I'm not going to blame ourselves. Nobody teaches us. I'm trying to teach you now, but if people <laughs> don't teach you, you, have, you, you actually can put a rider on that horse. Right. You know, then how are you supposed to know? Everything just seems to run by itself and you kind of fo you follow your brain. You go like a thought pops into your mind and you believe that you have to now think it. Thinking it is putting your attention on it, expanding it, playing with it, delving into it. Now I'm telling you, you actually have some free will. You don't have to think it if it's not producing the kind of a reaction in your body, mind, and soul that you are enjoying. <laughs> you don't have to right, buy right. it. Yeah, okay, so, so, um, so speaking of being able to change your thoughts and change your behaviors, um, regarding parenting, I know there's a lot of talk about um, incentivizing kids and rewarding kids for their good behavior. And there's also a school of thought that believes more in kind of like teaching children the intrinsic value of doing good things without the reward. So can you speak a little bit to that? What are your views regarding incentivizing kids to change their behaviors and improve their behaviors? There's lots of ways to um, reward people and we cannot help but use them because of the way that we are created. So if a child says good morning and you smile at the child and say, good morning, honey, you have actually just rewarded her brain um, by attending to her and smiling at her. And that circuit for saying good morning, mommy, whatever, has grown. Okay? So you did it accidentally, but there's no such thing as not rewarding somebody because um, certain things feel good to us or certain things produce attention, actually. even We can reward a negative behavior, too, by yelling at it. <laughs> it's, right. it's also a form of reward. So right. basically, we're interacting with each other's brains all the time. So now we can do that purposely, intentionally, consciously, or we can do it accidentally. If you do it accidentally, you get very bad results. Because um, if you look at some of the examples I put in Better Behavior Now, just for example, in that book, we're talking about a kid who's uh, eating food with his hands. And every time he eats with his hands, his parents look at him and say, use your fork, okay? Please use your fork, honey. You have to use your fork. Honey, how many times do I have to tell you, use your fork or whatever it is? Yeah. But every time they look at him and they give him that eye contact and they give him their presence and their voice and everything, and they say anything they could say, like I say in the book, I say they could say cock-a-doodle-doo. It really wouldn't matter what they say. They're giving him a reward in the terms of the brain. The brain likes that attention, any attention. And the, and the brain says, oh, this whatever I'm doing right now 
you know, that's important. It's getting me some feedback from the environment. Add a wire to that circuit. Do it again. So when we start telling a kid to use his fork, we will find ourselves telling that child the same thing for years on end never noticing that our technique is rather ineffective because <laughs> it's not getting us anywhere. Now, that is the accidental use of reward um, where we don't understand what rewards are and what their impact is on the neurological process, which is called learning in a child. We parents are teachers. Our, our children are students. They are learning. And if we don't know how to use rewards, we will be teaching them all the wrong stuff, okay? That's the bottom line. So uh, now we can be very intentional about different kinds of rewards, but giving your child your presence, your words, your eye contact, that is a reward um, that happens. Beautiful. I love that thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know because when we, when we say reward, we think, okay, well, if you behave this way, I'll get yeah. you Lego at the end of the week. Don't yeah. worry. I like those two. It's, it's the same thing. If you were to raise your voice now and start yelling at him to get off the stupid computer because you're sick of it, you're also rewarding brain circuits. Okay. So, or giving him, um, you know, an extra half hour of reading time or a privilege or um, a treat that we don't normally have to eat or whatever it is, anything can be used uh, constructively and intentionally to reward the brain circuits. You just have to know how. And uh, again, I, I am pushing this today because I, I really would like every parent in the entire world to read my very short book, Better Behavior Now, because it is the key to working with a, a human being for 20 developmental years and understanding this process of what causes the brain circuits to develop in the way that you're trying to get them to develop. The essence is some kind of rewarding um, interaction between your brain and the child's brain. You have just, you know, <laughs> I don't know how we've been raising children without it, to tell you the truth, without this knowledge. So yes, you can use anything for reward. The main thing is knowing where you're going and why you're doing what you're doing, what you're saying. You know, like you have to understand what you're doing. I, I just want to ask you in regard to reward, like if you have two children and let's say you decide to do an incentives with jars, do you think it's not good in a way because they're competing with each other? Like there's this competitiveness or do you think that that's fine? No, I mean, if you were setting up a reward chart, which should only be done once a year or twice a year for a couple of weeks for a special project in the same way that you might set up an incentive for yourself, <laughs> like to stop yelling or to lose five pounds or to, I don't know, whatever you want to urge yourself on towards. When you're doing it, the reward system has to work so that you are automatically receiving rewards within a number of days. So, uh, for example, you start off where a child would easily succeed and get the first reward after let's say it's a six-year-old child, because it depends on the age of the child when that first reward has to happen, but let's say within three days. And then the second level, working a little harder, would come within a week. And then working a little harder still would come within two weeks. The way you're setting up the reward means that if, like, if you're asking a child to learn to clean his room, for example, you would say that if um, everything is off the floor in the morning, you can put a sticker on the fridge or whatever on your chart and when you get three stickers, which would be three mornings, you'll get your first reward. And so each child is only going to be working to the point where they can get their first reward. It's not a competition against each other. It's, I, to, it's to build on their skill. The next reward would be, okay, you get the socks off the um, floor, you get the, everything off the floor, and, um, and the bed has to be made. If you do that you know, every day, and you're only picking what you know the child can easily do, do that for a week, then you'll get the next reward, which happens to be a little bit bigger and a little bit better. 
And then, you know, in the third week, what you need to do to get the reward is you have to have five of your seven days. You have to have the bed made and the stuff off the floor, the desk cleared or something, you know, and then you get that reward. And so it keeps building up. But each, each child is on their own little schedule with how they're going to succeed, you know, step by step against, you know, and, and each step is easy. You're just building on it. I guess um, a close reading of that chapter in my other book, Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice, will help you construct a reward system properly. We're not just doing like a list, like, okay, you've got to brush your teeth and wash the floor and, you know, uh, play nicely with your brother, blood, and you get a point for each one of these things and when you get 25 points. No, we're not doing it like that. It's, it's much more um, thought out and systematic. It's only on one tiny area of behavior and so on. So yeah, I especially that. like that you said um, it should be within a short period of time because I found yeah. that sometimes I've done this for a week and I see that that's just too long for them to wait, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. especially mm-hmm. this time where delayed gratification is a lot harder than it used to be with everything that we have at our mm-hmm. fingertips. But mm-hmm. speaking of which, I, you know, with the world changing so quickly that it's hard to keep up, um, do you feel that, that in your practice you've had to adjust your approach to meet the changing needs of modern society, like technology and all of the new things that we're dealing with now with our kids, many of whom are much more tech savvy than we are as parents. And well, you should just know between Ida and I, we have 12 kids and they range from the ages of five to 24. So I feel like, let's say my 24 year old grew up in a different world from the world I'm raising my six year old in. So I was just wondering if you have any things that you've tweaked over time with the books you've written from many years ago till now. With your approach you know what's funny is that like i just i just wrote that most recent one better behavior now um and the only thing i've tweaked in it <laughs> is just a you know the deeper explanation of the neurological processes that make my other work <laughs> work in other words i've explained in raise your kids without raising your voice what to do but uh, if there's a much deeper understanding of it in better behavior now um, and the world has changed uh, because that was 15 years ago where i wrote that other book and when I wrote Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice, I had written an earlier book that the general philosophy was the same, but it was more oriented towards um, character development from uh, a Jewish point of view. It was called The Delicate Balance. And that, that book, yeah, good, okay. So that one yes. I wrote 15 years before the first one, whatever it is. And I, <laughs> you know, if I think about like what, I, what, I, did, what did I really change here, you know, the examples maybe, like now we're talking about a device, you know, um, you know getting the kids to... Um, but it, when I'm th- when I'm personally thinking about parenting, I'm not thinking about how the issues are played out, like um, over what the issues are played out and how much. Um, I'm thinking more of the dynamic between parents and children, which has never changed. It's not likely to change. the The need to lay down whatever rules you're laying down and interact uh, over whatever issues you're interacting with the respect and love that builds healthy human beings. Okay. That's all I'm thinking about. So I don't care if you're talking about a computer or a television or a book or a pencil, I don't care what you're talking about. Okay. It has to be that the interaction itself is healthy. So, you know, if if parents ask me specific questions, like, you know, how much computer time should I have my kid on or something? So some people believe none, you know, none is enough, no computer time. Other people believe that, you know, um, a half hour day of entertainment or something is good. Another one doesn't care. It could be two or three hours, whatever. People have their own standards on that. And I'm, I, I'm not making those standards for anybody. I don't have an opinion on your value system. Okay. Um, but what you, where you're aiming your child, 
Um, I could think of, you know, that I might like a kid to be productive and to have fresh air and sunshine and exercise. And, um, you know, but that's my opinion. <laughs> if you, you know, there, there's benefits to being a technological whiz also. And, you know, lots of people who spend a lot of time in their computers are living a very good lives. So I'm not, I'm not getting, not touching that one, you know. Right. So there's definitely a core there that um, hasn't really changed over time. It's, it's, it reminds me of, um, you know, the Torah, which is a, a guidebook for life. And it was written a long time ago, but the <laughs> principles apply today. So I feel like it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to the approach to parenting is that the principles are the same and whatever specific issues we have today, um, you know, if we dig a little deeper, we will we'll have our answers regardless right. of what we're dealing with on the surface. Well, one book of yours that I did read is The Delicate Balance, and I read it recently, and I did find that everything in there applied to today. So I, you're right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I often wonder what is the appropriate age for our kids to take responsibility and how much should we be involved as parents? Like anything ranging from making their own lunches and getting their homework done, um, being able to go out, on their own. Uh, when can we begin to give our kids more independence while trusting that they are mature enough to navigate on their own? Like, because we do want them to be independent. But we also want to show love, like that they have our support as well. Well, young children love uh, to be able to do things because it's like they're kind of like a little chicky in an egg that has to, you know, crack open. Um, so they have an imperative to grow and to learn more skills all the time. And and that, if we keep that alive, don't kill it in them, they'll have that for their whole life. And they'll be able to accomplish great things because they feel like they're allowed to explore and to learn and to grow through the mistake process too, because we have to keep adjusting our course and get it wrong and then get it right and then learn some more and get it right some more. So a child who is allowed to exercise their capabilities starts to feel very competent and that competence uh, moves into confidence. And confidence causes the personality to be able to take more risks and to grow even more. And it's just a great cycle of things. So, uh, and the as soon as a child can do something, they should be allowed to do it, encouraged to do it, and celebrated for doing it. So, if a two-year-old could, not a two-year-old, whatever, a four-year-old could pull the blanket up on her bed and you know, not perfectly, but she can take it and put it up. So, wow. You're making your bed. Wow, you're a great, you know, bed maker already. I can't believe it. That's a fantastic, you know. And um, and then little kids can certainly start taking things in and off the table when you're having a family meal. Um, if a kid can carry something, it doesn't have to be the most precious, you know, piece of china you've got there. But you know, if they can take a plate in, a fork in, whatever it is, and they're already a helper, they love doing that. It makes them feel good. They don't hate it. Um, it it's not hard for them at that point. It's easy for them. But uh, the longer you wait to ask a kid to start doing something, the more that what's happened is their brain has kind of given up on the idea of them as an actor, a producer, a, a doer, and they're waiting for you to do something. I mean, you don't start teaching a kid, ideally, I know some of you may have already been in this position, but you, you actually don't start teaching a kid to cook, clean, and do the basics of self-care when they're a teenager, because you have passed some important developmental stages where the kid actually wants to do all that so you know now the child thinks you should be doing all that and i've certainly come across parents where 25 year old kids who are living at home for whatever reason still think that their mother is somehow supposed to be the one to clean and cook and do everything and they shouldn't because the mother's supposed to do that like they they've cut off some of their brain (laughs) there's the mother was never a servant the mother was a teacher 
So you, you want to be teaching as soon as you can. And this comes with money, responsibilities. If you don't give a kid money when he gets married and now he's going to ruin his life with it, he has to have money and learn how to save it, invest it, and use it and spend it appropriately when he's a teenager so that any mistakes he makes, you know, will cost him a hundred dollars, not thousands of dollars or, you know, some serious thing. So as soon as the kid shows capability, we hand the responsibility over to the child to use that ability with some guidance and some, you know, supervision at first, whatever it is, and some help, and then allow the child to grow. I don't know if that's too vague an answer, but I mean, basically no, the answer no. is as soon as possible. Right. <laughs> so, it, so is it up yeah. to us as, as parents to determine like intuitively when our child is ready to do certain things or are there developmental stages that, you know, we know at this point, a child is ready to do this and to do that? I mean, I can even give you an example, like let's say making lunches for the kids. That's something that we can out of love make for them or we consider them, you know how to do Don't this. Don't do too much out of love, okay? Like you, you need to be busy. You need to be so busy that the mundane tasks are, um, you don't see that as the purpose of your existence. You've got other things you can do. And if your child is able to add the snacks to the lunch at that age, you know, you take from the cupboard and put it into your bag or whatever it is. Here's the cupboard at your child height. You can reach in there and you take out three things you put in the bag. Learn how to choose the healthy foods um, where you're providing a menu in the house of healthy foods and guidelines and your teaching and so on. Um, so you're, of course, teaching the child. But as soon as they're able to stick their hand in the right place and put it in their bag, go ahead. Like, um, I don't think that doing, like, even you want your teenagers or certainly children who are in their 20s. And I'm going to say this again because there's a lot of older kids who are still living at home who should be cooking meals for the family. You know, like they're adults living at home. Like there's, there shouldn't be one person doing all the work. That it's ridiculous. Like that's not what you're there for. Um, you can show your love in a lot of ways and we can help each other out, but you want your children to be com- competent adults. So we start, yes, as soon as they can help make your lunch, why should you line up there? If you had 10 kids, you're making all their peanut butter sandwiches. Why? I mean, because six of those kids can easily do it themselves. You know, it's only the littlest ones who need your help. Soon, you know, so when they're out of the high chair, they're moving, they need to move in the right direction. So um, as soon as possible is always the right. answer. So I just want to go back to this one example with, um, for example, a child going away to summer camp. And I've spoken to some parents who feel that at, in first grade, their children are ready um, and others who feel that emotionally and psychologically, they might not be prepared to be on their own, you know, away from their families. Um, we don't get um, competent by not doing things, first of all. So we only get competent through doing things. Like when we go away, um, we learn how to be okay, you know, away. We learn to become more independent um, by being in that situation that demands our independence. The question of how young is too young, when we think of kids, let's say, under 10, who are in some countries in boarding schools, I think that a lot of children under 10 would much rather be home with mummy. But children between, you know, 12 and 20, like the teenage years, they don't necessarily want to be home with mummy. They're not like, um, much as we want them there, they, they might be more ready for adventure, for learning, for independence and stuff. Now, that age, you know, 10 to 15, some kids are, and I'm going to say, there's different kinds of kids. So there are kids who between 15 and 20, they're really homebodies and they're, they don't want to be around um, 
strangers. They don't want to be in a dormitory. They want to be at home. That's where they're going to thrive. That's their personality. There are other children who actually are anxious and do not, um, you know, their anxiety disorders or whatever make it very difficult for them to be away. Some of them will be fine and actually thrive even at age, you know, 14, being sent off to school out of town far away. And some, you know, would do better at home. So that's partly an individual matter. But um, we as a culture are kind of um, over-babying children um, because we love them so much, which is not a bad thing. But our estimate of what they could cope with is like we're grossly underestimating in general, I think, what they could cope with and what, what people that age have always coped with. I mean, if we think, I think of my grandparents who got on a boat when they were 17 and left Russia, whatever it is, and came, you know, never without, without uh, internet access to their parents, without you know, telephone access, without a fax machine. They, I don't even know if they have mail, you know, they get off and do that stuff. And I don't know that, you know, I think that was just a way of life that younger people were more adult-like earlier. Um, how early depends on you, depends on the child. So I don't want to get any flat statements there. I don't really, you know, I think it's individual. But I, at the same time, I don't think we should be so fearful for them because I think they have many more resources than we think and that they would a lot of times, you know, be thriving when we think that they'll be scared and alone and all that stuff, not necessarily. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that you mentioned that it's specific to the child and that speaks to the Torah perspective of educating your child in his or her way yeah. um, because every child is different and, you know, we have to intuitively know what it is they might need. Um, but um, just a little bit off topic, but is there a common myth about parenting that you would dispel? That's <laughs> a big question. <laughs> you, you know, you know what? There, I, there's a I have um, a very active uh, account on Instagram, right, where I'm, I'm educating parents there. And I follow you. I, yeah, me too. Oh, <laughs> I love the quotes. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've noticed on Instagram um, is that the parenting myth is is put out there in huge form on these pictures and on all the mothering sites of smiling mothers and smiling children who look all perfect, you know, all beautifully dressed and everything, where the children are never older than three. Okay, you hardly find a child older than three there because I said before, you know, that lovability of a toddler um, just looks so perfect. But when you get to a four-year-old, six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, whatever it is, now they're complex human beings who are not always smiling they have a lot of other emotions. In fact, there's five main emotions. We have uh, happy ones, sad ones, mad ones, scared ones, and confused or unsettled ones, okay? Four out of the five are negative emotions. Happy mm. is okay, okay? Sad, <laughs> mad, scared, and confused. Um, wow. And lots and lots of shades of, of emotions within each category. So there could be like, you know, 30 you know, subcategories of happy and 30 of sad and so on. Now, Four out of the five categories are negative emotions. And raising a human being is a very difficult project because the human beings are the most complex creatures in the universe. And, um, you know, we're, we're just sitting here nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just an easy, beautiful mother love kind of experience to have a child. I mean, what drives us is some kind of, you know, uh, to have children is the is this feeling of love that we want to bestow on, you know, we, we, we picture this glowing, amazing union, whatever it is, but there's so much 
complexity there that as the child gets older, your feelings, um, the, in, the helplessness that parents feel, the worry that parents feel, the, um, the battle of wills that happens between parent and child, it's so complex. It's really, really, really hard and requires skill and knowledge, not just love and intuition. Okay? We need more than that. We need tools. I love that. It's more of an active role where we need to practice parenting to build that skill that we need. Um, you know, to be best equipped to, to care for our kids and for ourselves. And um, mm-hmm. speaking of ourselves, I just, oh. I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much talk about self-care and um, especially now with the, in the, with the self-help industry booming. So there's this notion that we need to take care of ourselves first so that we could be equipped to take care of our children. You know, I'm, I'm seeing that there's also maybe a misinterpretation of that in that, you, well, we need to take care of ourselves. So I want to go away or on a trip or do all these things. Um, so where do you draw the line between self-care and then f- and selfish um, where, you know, are, are there signs to look out for to make that more clear to us? Like, how do we know if we're being, if this is considered self-care um, or if it's something that maybe we shouldn't be doing because we want, we should be there for our kids. I love that you're talking about trips, like in the olden days. Or <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I'm trains and went away. <laughs> especially, especially now that we're in quarantine and there's no trips to go on. Yeah, there's no trip. The trip, the trip right, to the right, living room right. or a trip to the basement? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, so the self-care thing, I think you're raising an interesting point that actually makes me free associate to a larger point on the same topic. There is self-sacrifice involved in taking care of kids. Uh, self-care t- is the, to the point where, not that we are liking every moment of what we have to do, but that we have the energy to do it and that we're not cracking up, we're not exhausted, we're not physically or mentally ill. So we need enough, enough self-care to maintain our well-being to have the strength to do a job, which is a 24-7 job, a very difficult, difficult job. So we need to eat. We need to rest. We need to have a friend or two to talk to. We need some friends. Um, We need some productive activity. We need a focus other than the children. We need a relationship with God. We need a lot of different things, but we're going to have to get those needs met in small chunks throughout the course of a week and a month. It's not going to happen every day that we can take care of ourselves while we're raising children, especially while the children are very young and require so much um, intervention. Once the kids are in school, we have some time that if, if all your kids are in school, then there's that some time when they're in the, away from your house where you can concentrate on getting some of those needs met a little bit better, but it depends if you have a full-time job and whatever. It, but it's very, very difficult in our world where women are working um, and they're um, looking after children. Now they're also teaching. Some people are at home trying to hold down a job and teach and give their, meet their children's emotional needs. And it's really, when are we going to eat and sleep and take care of ourselves under quarantine? This is a, you know, um, particular challenge. But the idea that self-sacrifice is part of the job, that's, that's the thing I want to acknowledge there. They, it's not equal between you and the children. This comes all the way to whether or not you would stay in a less than ideal marriage because let's say the marriage is a little annoying and frustrating, disappointing to you, um, and you could get yourself out of there and move and hope for a better partner, more appropriate for who you are today, that kind of thing. You know? So 
at one point in history, nobody would consider such a thing because like you have children to raise, you brought children to the world. Like it doesn't matter that your marriage isn't ideal, you know? And um, now the self-care idea has gone to such a point where people think I have a right to be happy. And um, therefore I'll pursue, you know, what I need to do to make sure I am happy. And my children will really appreciate that. <laughs> well, the truth is, no, your children will not really appreciate that because they need a home, a stable environment in which to grow up until they're ready to make their own home. So, um, you know, the, we have to be careful about how much we think of ourselves and recognizing our responsibility once you've brought um, children into the world. It's like when somebody, you know, kids say to the mother, can I have a dog? I want a dog. You know, the mother says, well, you know, if you get a dog, you don't have to walk that dog. You have to care about its needs. I, you know, like you're not old enough. You're not responsible enough. And, and the kid promises that they will do it. And then of course the kid gets tired of it after a while. It's like, I don't want to get up every day. I don't want to take that walk dog out twice a day. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Um, because it's hard to be on call endlessly, always, you know? So just, you just have to realize that though it's hard, you got, it is something that you can't give the kids back. You know, they are there and they have needs. So you will lose out on the ideal amounts of sleep and fun and relaxation that you would like to have until your kids are completely out of the house. Then you can have, organize your life the way you want. But that is just a fact. So enough self-care to be healthy and to be happy. And not more than that. Does that make any sense? Thank you for that perspective. Mm -hmm. I, that is insightful. I appreciate that. Okay. Do you, Ada? I do, yeah. You're thinking I'm about absorbing it. it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm absorbing it. We're going to be absorbing all of this afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I actually wanted to bring something up a little bit more specific and simpler. Mm -hmm. It's actually, it's, it's not so simple for me. <laughs> it's a common concern, but this is something that I go through every night with my two little ones at bedtime. I feel like my kids have energy reserves that they save for bedtime. My two little ones are a year apart mm -hmm. and, bed, and bedtime feels like a party time for them. Mm -hmm. How can I stop uh, the wildness, the giggling in a positive way? Or should I just be allowing them to do this? Because especially in quarantine now where they're indoors, I'm in Brooklyn and, you know, what, how do I navigate this situation in the evenings that all of a sudden being so excited about life? <laughs> <laughs> You can, you can outsmart them, you know, like if you, um, bedtime is an interesting concept, but like you can call bedtime for eight when you know that bedtime is nine and you can start that routine and allow that giggle time, that play time, and then that, you know, slower wind down time so that by the time it gets to nine, which is your real bedtime, which you never shared that knowledge with anybody, <laughs> you know, then they're in bed and you'll be happy that your kids were in bed at bedtime with the bedtime that you met, that you started that earlier. Um, the people have a lot of complaints about the sleeping habits of their family, especially now because so many people are up till one, two, three in the morning, then they are uh, getting up at 11 o'clock the next morning or the same morning, I guess. <laughs> people are on very strange clocks right now. And yeah. sometimes the whole household is on that clock and sometimes um, just some teenage kid is or some of the younger kids are or one parent is. The main trick for regular bedtimes is to get up at the regular same time every day, what time you want to start that day. So if you are getting up at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock, let's say 7 o'clock in the morning every day, um, then you tend to get tired, depending on your age, at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or 10 p.m., depending on how old you are. 
so that you'll get the right amount of sleep. But let's say, you know, you would if you get up at seven, you're tired. If you're a kid, if you're going to get up at seven, you might be tired and ready for bed at eight. Now, if you stay up till nine and then get up at eight the next morning, then you won't be tired till nine the next day. And if you get the later you get up in the daytime, the less tired you are at the so-called bedtime. Okay, so if you want that bedtime to work out. You must wake the child up at the same time every day, and the child does get tired actually at a certain time, just like everybody gets tired eventually. So um, you decide what time you want them up, and don't play with that. And then you, based on that, keep, you know, figure out what time the bedtime is, and give lots of time for winding down, so that you don't just suddenly go from now we're dressed and now we're eating and now we're doing things to we're going to bed. You know, make that bedtime like quite stretched out with the bath first and. You know, with a story time next, a quiet activity before, uh, right before sleep, so that you're helping them to settle down. So we're jumping, and then we're having stories, and then we're lying down. You know, <laughs> in that kind of order. Right. I, yeah, because my kids do get up at the same time every day. They do get up at seven-ish. So, um, yeah. but I like this idea of yes, I do find when bedtime has to be done quickly, that's when this happens. But if I, yeah. I, I like this yeah. idea. <laughs> No, that's great. I like this idea of extending bedtime. So we allow that, that giggly time and some reading time. And then, okay, <laughs> it's good to have that that's thought. It. I know um, we have listeners here who want to find ways to get their children to eat healthier. And I love some of the tips in your book from 15 years ago. You probably have some new ones now <laughs> of, of how to do so. I mean, I think a little, you know, food education and food rules is really important. I'm always surprised when I see that Parents are feeding their kids without providing any education about what's in a food and what it does for you. So the um, there was a great series of books for both adults and kids. I think it was called Eat This, Not That. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, they're picture books. I used to read them lying around the house um, so kids can look at. They would just show two different brands of a cereal and show you know, a popular cereal, let's say, and see what is in that cereal and why you should choose one brand over the other. And providing that kind of uh, education, but I know they're suitable for 10-year-olds or 8-year-olds, anybody who could read, actually, uh, and very fascinating to see why would we choose one product over another to put into our system? And what does food do? So, like, I think this education part, that we need proteins and we need carbohydrates and we need uh, fats and we need to have them all together, you know, and you can't just have, you know, whatever, unbalanced food in your system because it'll affect your brain and your health and your well-being. So, um, and then that education combined with joyful eating, which, you know, you're into preparing the foods in such a way that it tastes good. So you don't just put like a bland vegetable on them, but you get in, you know, everybody's into celebrating food and cooking it and seasoning it and spicing it and making it delicious. It really, you know, um, reduces a lot of the problem right there. The, but the other thing is that when children just want their cheese on bread in 20 million varieties of that macaroni and cheese, grilled cheese, cheese on bread with ketchup. <laughs> That's what they don't want to eat when they're little. Um, we don't just give it to them because that's what they asked for. They're like, yeah, you can have that. You know, we're having that tomorrow night for dinner or for next, you know, on Sunday morning for breakfast or whatever it is. But we're now, that's, you know, once a week, if you don't like the meal that I'm making for the family, you can pull out a substitute meal, which can be, and then you, you have that substitute ready, which is maybe like, you know, um, some healthy substitute that they can have. 
but you're leading the way and guiding like what is appropriate and inappropriate in the food department. You're not letting your child or your child's unhappy face, you know, when they're little, you know, I don't want that, you know, whatever it is. That's fine. You know, you're not flustered about that. It's just that you're not serving them. You're not putting ketchup all over everything just so that they'll eat. You're not like you're just taking the adult position. Um, I'm not poisoning you just because, you know, <laughs> you, you don't want some food. And you're cool and calm and relaxed about it. It's not a battle. It's not even a question. It's just you're in a leadership role. You had given these little tips in your book about, let's say, when your kid says to you, I really want that nush right now. And mm-hmm. instead of just saying straight out no, I would say, yes, you can, but we're going to have it on Shabbos. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we're going to have that. Doesn't that look yummy? The kid is pointing out the, the garbage cereal in the store, you know. Oh, I want that. I said, yes, you can have that. We'll have that. That'll be our shop of cereal, like you're saying. Or, um, yeah, a yes is more palatable to the ears than a no. A no, that's not good for you. Like, there is a place to have just, um, you know, your food that is not nutritious. But you want to make that's part of your rules. Like, we have that only one day a week or we have that only you know um we don't take that to school every day for lunch for the main course <laughs> like we have regular you know nutritious snacks and whatever it is and then one day a week yes we do have those things and i don't believe that we should have we should starve children of the things that other people are eating like their classmates and their friends and whatever and their relatives because that can develop an um, unhealthy craving for um for unhealthy foods like right. that's, all, that's your balanced approach. That's yeah, yeah no, the balanced I approach is all about. Yeah. 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 It's all about balance. Yeah. Not full deprivation. And, and also at the same time, modeling for our kids, you know, the way we want them to eat, doing, doing those things ourselves so that they can learn by example. Um, and also food have the food opportunity. Is so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> food is great. Um, that's why so, I loved your answer of saying, yeah, not to say no, but to say yeah. yes and explain to them when there's going here's to the be. time. Here's the yes. time when we're going to have that on your yeah, birthday. So, <laughs> but like once a week, I really think that, you know, the kids need to know that things are coming. They can look forward to it and um, they're not going to be deprived, you know, small yeah. doses of, of sweet treats, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of time, I, we've already. Yeah. We have I can't to, okay. time, time has flown by, but it makes sense. Yes. This, is, this is such a wonderful conversation, but we want to leave some time for you to share um, your book and where it's available. And we want to get some more information about where people can find you. So can you share what your book is called and where it's available? Yes. Yeah, so um, I just have a couple books that might be relevant also right now. There's one, um, The Fear Fix, which I wrote uh, a number of years ago, but it's about helping your child through anxious feelings and it will help yourself as well. So for those people who are feeling um, a little unbalanced during the coronavirus and getting, you know, very nervous or anxious or scared or overwhelmed or whatever, traumatized by this whole thing, the fear fix um, might be helpful. And then they have the Raise Your Kids Without Raising Your Voice one, which is, you know, available online. And the one I really want people to read right now is The Better Behavior Now, which is available in Jewish bookstores. It's also on Amazon. It's supposed to be on Book Depository so that we'll have uh, international whatever reach soon but they're right now it's just coming soon it says there so on the, on the site so we'll see when it actually shows up i hope it'll be soon and uh you can find me on instagram at sarah Fennel radcliffe uh, i am on facebook and i send out through email daily parenting posts so um you can sign if you go to my instagram page you'll see a link in the bio for the daily parenting posts um, but that's free for everybody you can send them to your friends and relatives or have them all sign up as well or that's go wonderful. straight to my account amazing parentingpost.com and on that account you'll be lots of parenting courses and resources that i've already developed uh, many of them through jewish workshops 
I have a weekly live webinar that you can join me for an hour each week um, and it's recorded so you can watch it you know 24 7 if you don't, can't make it at 12 noon on Thursdays Eastern Standard Time but you know we're there and that's very interactive a way to really ask your question to get them answered so I'm there all the time trying to be here <laughs> amazing well we hope yeah. a lot of questions were answered here today for everybody mm -hmm. and we always end our podcast with a quote do you have a favorite quote or a parenting quote from your book that you'd like to share with, with all of us to end off with okay. I'm going to say love love is everything love is everything in this sense but you have to know how to convey it okay it's not just that it's in your heart you have to know how to get it out there so it will be received. And so there, there are skills and techniques for that. So the quote would be love, love is everything, but you have beautiful. to convey it. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your insight. This, I'm, I'm sure, will be helpful for so many of our listeners. Who, what parent can't use some some great tips? Thank you so much and again for yeah. inviting me. love to talk about this stuff. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank okay. you. Thank okay. you for joining bye us. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.